Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hey, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of Women in Manufacturing. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back or expand their manufacturing in the U.S. I also run a global supply chain firm called Blue Silk Consulting, where we help clients with global supply chain projects and where I also do expert witness work. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in business and we ask them to share with us their experiences. So today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Cindy Omegan, and she is the Director of Energy and Corporate Services at the Manufacturers Association of Central New York, which is also known as MACNI. This organization is so important to manufacturers, especially in central New York, but I'm going to let Cindy tell you a little bit more about that. So welcome, Cindy. Thank you for that introduction. Very nice. Cindy, tell us about your background and how you came to work in manufacturing. So I'm originally from Iowa. My dad actually had a construction company, and I remember as a little girl, he used to take me out on the job sites and He actually gave me the Inslee backhoe when I was maybe 10. And so he would tell me, you know, do you want to go see your Inslee working today? And so I would go with him on Saturday. So that was always really fun. So I kind of grew up around non-traditional female activities, I would say. And um, I also found that like in high school, even I was much more attracted to math and sciences that all made more sense to me than some of the less structured type of academia. You know, I I was one that I'm not good at memorization, but if you took math and I understood the foundation of what we were learning new, I could build on that. And that just made a lot more sense to me. So I ended up in kind of the sciences. I went to the University of Iowa and I was torn between accounting or engineering, and quite frankly, I connected better with the people in engineering, so I'm an engineer. (laughs) Hey, what kind of engineer? I'm industrial engineering. What I was drawn to with industrial engineering is that some of the coursework was management and handling people, and I am kind of a people person, so that was a combination of the science background with uh, the people piece. Ah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned math also. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't know this, but manufacturing is full of math, especially on a factory floor. It's all geometry. It's planes and angles and just all kinds of calculations. It's very heavily math-oriented, for sure. Especially with the focus on data these days, you know, that's what it's all about, right? Right. That's right. Absolutely. So tell us about MACNI. I think it's one of those organizations, you know, that's got a an acronym for it and people don't necessarily know either what it means or what you actually do. Right. So we, we are a membership organization. We have 300 plus members, mostly centered around Syracuse, the central New York area. Two thirds of our membership are manufacturing companies, both small and larger. We do have some, we call them, you know, third party insurance companies and things like that who, you know, are they belong because they really want to have connections with our manufacturing base. We provide a whole variety of services. We do a lot of networking events. You know, we like our companies to know each other and to be able to do best practices with one another, et cetera. As a matter of fact, we have what we call our councils. 
and there are eight of them. We present on a monthly basis topics that are pertinent to a particular segment of a manufacturing company. For example, there's a finance council and a plant managers council, a continuous improvement council, you know, that kind of thing. So they're topics that are important to that group of people. But it's really about networking and bringing topics to the table that they're interested in and, and sharing with each other about what different companies are doing to, to help manage their businesses. And then we also have a big portion of our work these days is the workforce development because our companies are in such dire need for people. So we've grown this over the past couple of years and it's become more than half of our, our uh, employees here at MACNI are working on apprentices and helping companies get supporting apprentices in their factories and you know we the workforce isn't out there we're going to have to develop it so we're trying to help them figure out how to do that and probably more because of that than anything we are we have partnered with other organizations similar to us in across the state and that's the manufacturers alliance ask if that's true and most states have some kind of organization like this to support manufacturers Right. We have several, you know, but a few years ago, my boss, Randy, he's our, our president. He had uh, figured this out with a couple of our, our other manufacturers associations and said, you know, as a group, they're much stronger from an advocacy standpoint. So they we meet with them once a week to talk about what's going on and what's going on with the advocacy part of it as well. So and the apprentice we actually have helped them develop apprentice programs for their regions. And so it's a lot that we do. Pretty much yes. anything. That part yeah. of my title, that corporate services, is kind of, we just want to be the go-to for anything that companies are looking for, whether it's just a connection, it could be supply chain help, we do leadership training, lots of stuff. Wow, that's amazing that there's that kind of help out there for manufacturers. I wonder if everybody really knows about it in, in any place in the U.S., if you know manufacturers actually know there's such a network and you know such a great resource for them right. to look for assistance. I know that was that was really key during the pandemic also, though we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Something else you mentioned I wanted to talk about a little bit, and that's apprenticeships. So, so, so important these days, especially right. as we're starting to see more sourcing going on in the U.S. And if there aren't enough people to work in the environments of manufacturing, then the sourcing in the U.S. isn't going to do any good. You won't be able to get your goods anyway. So the apprenticeship program, especially teaching uh, like tool tool and die making, that kind of thing is just crucial, crucial, crucial. Right. Tell us a little bit more about those apprenticeship programs. So there was a time period in the not too distant past where the apprenticeship kind of languished. It really wasn't on the forefront any longer. And um, as we began to see this need, we actually have revived some of those apprenticeship tracks, if you will, that are already existed at the state as official transferable apprenticeship, you know, to be had by folks who completed all the requirements. So we actually have revitalized that, worked very closely with the Department of Labor, tried to figure out with companies which ones were going to make the most sense for them. And we play the role of, call it the intermediary. So we basically serve as the connection, the conduit between the companies and the state, so like the Department of Labor. So we kind of handle all that paperwork behind the scenes for the company so they don't have to do it. They don't have to carry extra resources to do it. They have a part to play in it, of course. They you know, need to support the apprentice and all that kind of thing. But the paperwork stuff, we actually do that. 
for them. What's the paperwork for? Is it is it some kind of grant program or something like that? There are grants, but the, the paperwork to become an apprentice, you have to be able to document the kind of coursework that you're doing. They call it related education. So there has to be schooling that you do with a local university or something like that or colleges. And that's a piece that we can aggregate smaller companies together that maybe couldn't do that on their own because they only have one or two apprentice. But if you can put five or six of them together, now you've got a class for a particular subject. Oh, I got you. So, so, so it's related to teaching them, uh, teaching right. the apprentices, I see. So like a machine tool operator or something like right. that. Right, I make exactly. Sure and there's the part that the companies have to do inside their own walls that is very specific to how they do that part of the, the work the apprentice is learning. So it's a combination. It's a really good partnership that we do with the companies. Yeah, I heard somebody not too long ago mention that apprenticeship grant funding and loans, student loans, that kind of thing were sort of front and center in terms of companies evaluating how they could bring on more more employees. One of the suggestions was to offer a, a scholarship program for apprentices because they have to actually pay for the, the training, right? So uh, offer a scholarship program or a loan program where they utilize that money while they're in school. And then once they become an apprentice at the company, the company pays it back. So they don't, yeah. so they end up not taking on a bunch of student loan bur- burden. Right. In fact, there's a, a number of the grants that we do manage that help subsidize the cost for the, the apprentices to take these classes and that kind of thing. So, yeah, great. And then do the companies ever reimburse for the training? They actually, the companies are the ones who receive the money so that they can cover the cost. Oh, I see. I see. I don't know all of the intimate details of it, but that's my understanding. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, because I, I can imagine you know, people just don't have the money to pay for, you know, a big college program and often choose not to go to college for that reason. And certainly don't want to burden the population with student debt. I lived through that. It wasn't very fun. Yeah, I know. I think it took me 20 years to pay off my loans after I got Yeah. Well, these technical skills are in such demand now. You know, it's in my view, the apprenticeship program is equivalent to a four-year college degree and is very much in demand. So absolutely. And and these jobs are so different, I guess I would say, from the past, having evolved into the computer age. Now, now the kind of jobs in manufacturing are what we would call new collar jobs. They're not just um, just you know unskilled labor. Now right. you have to deal with computers and like we were saying, mathematics and angles and settings exactly. and how to run a robot or how to fix a robot. Yeah, these are different kind of skills than we've ever seen before. Definitely. It's not your grandfather's factory. That's right. We say that a lot. It's not your grandfather's yes. manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. No. I'm particularly interested in how you helped companies during the height of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, we've been digging around, as you know, the Reshoring Institute is doing a project with manufacturers in New York to understand how they uh, made it through the pandemic. But and it's my understanding that MACNI was very involved and helped communicate and coordinate and so forth. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened during the pandemic, how you worked with the the manufacturers? Uh, Sure. So I guess it was a little bit of being at the right place at the right time, but we had a a group of manufacturing companies that a couple of them actually had locations across the world. 
And they saw this, this pandemic was hitting their factories over in Southeast Asia uh, pretty early on and were quite sure it was headed our way. And uh, they've dealt with that kind of thing over there before, but we never have. So a couple of the these company leaders were aware that it was coming and it was not going to be something that was easily just, you know, figure out what you're going to do. So actually one of them in particular sort of spearheaded this when he saw this was happening and he called up some of his other friends that were running the factories in the area and said, you know, the only way we're going to get through this is we do this together. We need to, you know, figure out what this process is going to look like, what kind of things do we need to put in place to keep our, our workers safe and the community safe. And they were definitely worried about their companies being shut down because of the pandemic. I think it was only a couple of weeks when they started talking to each other, they reached out to Randy, my boss, and said, you know, we're going to need some help with this. Would you be willing to step in and help us do this? So Randy tapped me and said, could you uh, see what we can do to help support them? So I kind of ended up being the conduit. You know, I sort of, we had a weekly meeting. We actually, it started off with one group of about 13 companies. We actually created a second cohort of companies that we ultimately merged them all together so they could all share best practices. But the the initial piece was to develop the protocols that were going to be necessary to allow people to stay at work safely so that we could stay open. Things like social distancing and right plastic shields and that kind of all of thing. that the masks uh, you know hand washing the screening at the door all of this so they they developed a checklist if you will that recognizing that each company has different processes is going to have to do it a little bit different but here are the things you need to have some kind of a product protocol in place to manage in order to be able to operate safely and so they helped one another and one of the things that it was their thought, but then I helped uh, implement it, was that once they had a plan in place that they were comfortable with, they wanted to have someone else from the group take a look at it, kind of as some eyes from the outside to see, does it make sense? Am I missing something? Is it confusing? So we basically set up, like if you were an ISO auditor, to come in and read it and say, okay, this part's good. Here's something that doesn't make sense. If I were you know, an employee, I might be confused by it. And so they actually helped one another. So I sort of set them up in teams, the pairs to do that. So sort of a peer audit. Peer audit. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And wow. so not long after they got really close to having all of that in place, of course, things were changing all the time. The state was getting more involved. And in fact, Randy playing a little bit of his advocacy role was able to get the plan that these guys had put together in front of the right people. So when the state came out with their suggested guidelines, it looked eerily similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. had put all the right things in place. So it was it was great. So as you know, this is it's not over. It's always changing. There's lots of questions that come up all along the way. So we have continued to meet on a weekly basis. We have an agenda that we go over, see how everybody's doing. They share a lot of the information that they're each learning. You know, and I share things as I run across things on the on the internet that looks like it might make sense, stuff that comes out of CDC and all that. So we just continue to post and share information with each other. And even down to we couldn't find masks. Where are we going to find masks? Well, somebody would say, go to this website. We've been able to find them. What about thermometers? And so it just became a great resource for each other to help through this craziness, you know. That's fantastic. Yeah, and we're, we're 
talking about like the pandemic is over and it's certainly not over. Not. So mm-hmm. are you still doing the weekly calls with the companies? We are still doing weekly calls. One of the things that we've been doing most recently is we've developed a relationship with uh, Upstate here in Syracuse, and they have a, a couple of um, community health doctors that are very knowledgeable and follow the data all across the country, and particularly what's going on in New York and the various counties. And, and so they, they come on, they're now coming on uh, every other week for an extra half hour for companies want to stay on, but they share with us what's happening now. Um, ideas about if you're having trouble getting people to get their vaccines, here's some techniques they've seen, some things like, you know, the mandating it does work. We've seen this in the past and here's what's likely going to happen. They're just a great resource and so credible because of the approach that they take. Yeah. I had one of one of the companies that I talked to recently said that uh, they hired a physician as a consultant And once a week on their staff calls, they'd bring the physician on and he would talk to them about the virus and what was happening. And Mm -hmm. so it was really interesting. What what a great best practice, you know, and it was, he was only joining for an hour a week or so. It wasn't all that expensive either, but really incredibly helpful in that regard. So that's, that's really great. Yeah. What a great best practice to point out. As a matter of fact, one of the the most recent things that just came out of it as a, one of the community health doctors reached out to me and said that they actually have a, a testing lab and a company that has developed a cheek swab test. And because people are having a really hard time finding the tests now, and you know, now we're looking at potentially having to either be vaccinated or do a weekly testing, the shortage of tests is going to be really a challenge. So we're just in the throes of figuring out, could we set up some mechanism where we can get these tests to the, the factories so they can actually do the testing at their site? And how would we get them back to get them analyzed so that we know in a short time frame? because they can't afford to have these people out of work while we wait for a test to happen. So, you know, trying to figure out all of that, it's not over, unfortunately. Yes, I've heard all kinds of stories about how difficult it is to get some employees to get a vaccine. There's lots of anti-vaxxers in, in the kind mm-hmm. of uh, communities that we've talked to. And, you know, trying to figure out a strategy for the company to keep all of the workers safe. And at I- least uh, weekly text- testing is something that... Um, you know, the anti-vaxxers aren't so afraid of. So that's right. Right. It's a a big challenge to get over to, you know, I I had one, one person tell me that she had a number of anti-vaxxers on the shop floor that were just adamant that they were not taking the vaccine. They just wouldn't take the vaccine and said, you know, God would protect them and so forth. And she had said, you know, it was just, incredibly difficult to get them through that and to understand why it was so important to protect others with the vaccine, not just themselves. So he said they were sort of successful, but they still have a lot of a number of people in the shop floor that are that are not vaccinated. As part of our part of our weekly, we actually have asked these companies to capture some data around seven or eight different key things that we thought would give us an idea of how well the programs are working. And so we do gather that from them every week. And one of the companies have provided a person who aggregates all of that and gives us the charts once a week so we can see how we're doing. It's, you know, how are we doing against the general overall population? Because that's a sign of whether our program actually is helping, of course. You know, we've gotten to the point where I don't think people are nearly as worried about catching anything from work 
but it's out in the community that's really hard to manage. And, and you know, so we're still continuing to, to watch all of that. But we know that our companies, I think all aggregated together are operating at about almost 80% vaccinated, which is pretty good. You know, so some companies are higher than that. We've got one that's like at 93. You know, it'll get there. You know, these things take time, but we'll get there, I'm sure. I know so, because until we, we get there, we're not going to get over the pandemic, right? So I know. it's going to go on and on and on. Right? I'm encouraged that, you know, now we're getting really close to having it proof for kids, because I think that's that's really the next key. They can spread it as quickly as anybody, so... Yeah, I was thinking last night about Thanksgiving and having my family over. And we, everyone's vaccinated except the kids that are under 12 and, um, you know, hoping that they can get vaccinated before that event. So right, we'll see. right. Yes. Let's turn the topic a little bit to to women. This is obviously Women in Manufacturing podcast. Right, so right. I'm interested in your perspective on how women fit into manufacturing. Well, I know that it's changed significantly over the time of my career. When I was in school, I was one of 11 in a college of 400. So there weren't very many of us women. <laughs> I, I was uh, my undergraduates in, in uh, logistics management, and I was one of three in, I think, in that particular, I went to Arizona State, so it was a big college. But I think in that particular discipline, there were only a couple hundred people, too. So I was one of three, which was for me, it was good because I knew for sure I was going to get a job. <laughs> you know, they were looking for women. So, you know, I thought it was and it was quite easy for me to get right. a job. And yeah, then, so. then the majority of my career I spent actually here at Krauss Heinz, and which is very typical stovepipe manufacturing, heavy manufacturing, all that. It was a, it was a great place to spend a big chunk of my career because they were very vertically integrated. We had foundries, we had iron foundry, aluminum foundry, plastics, you know, CNC plating. We had all kind, and I got to learn all of it because I actually managed the suggestion program, and then. I think our vice president kind of got a kick out of the fact that, you know, I was the only female in about a hundred plus engineers. And so he would have me do tours when they had, you know, important customers come through and all that. So I got, I got to know the factory pretty well. So it was a nice way to get a very broad education about lots of different processes. And so I guess that that obviously has changed. They did begin to hire some more women a while into my time there, but I really was one of a hundred for a number of years. For the most part, I never got a sense that that made me an oddity. I mean, I'm just weird anyway. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I know, I know how you feel. I felt the same way being the only, when I went to work, finally, I was the only female manager in the entire factory. And while there were workers that were women, I was, you know, the weirdo. I stuck out for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but I, I do think that, you know, that when you go into a, a factory these days, there's a, a lot more women that are in, you know, supervisory roles and manager roles and things. So I know that it has changed significantly. For a time period, you only saw them showing up in like IT jobs and those kind of more white collar jobs, but I'm seeing a lot more actually on the manufacturing floor now too. So yeah, a lot more women engineers as well. Yeah. So it's changed over time. Do you think uh, salaries have kept up? Oh, we always felt like maybe, I mean, I was within the salary band, but had I been a man with the kind of education that I had and background and the and the um, initiative that I took and so forth, I would have done much better had I been male. 
I don't, I don't know, because to be honest with you, I never paid a lot of attention to what anybody else was making. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, I just, you know, knew that here's where I wanted to be and how was I going to figure that out? And I, and I was fortunate that I had a couple of pretty good mentors who did happen to be male, but uh, I remembered that, uh, there was an opening as a supervisor and this was the, the whole glass ceiling thing is the, how do I, how do I get into that? But he gave me some good advice. He said, you know, had set up an appointment to go talk to the VP who was ultimately the decision maker. And he said, take yourself some recipe cards with you, make some notes. There's nothing wrong with that. And that helped give me a little bit of confidence to be able to have this conversation with them. And, and ultimately I did get, get to be a supervisor for a group of engineers and it was a lot of fun. I mean, we had a, we worked really hard, but we also got along really great and had some good times too. So, and they were all engineers, you know. A similar experience. I haven't thought about this in years, but so I was working for a defense contractor in San Diego and running logistics. And I slowly but surely got a few other operating segments. I had um, material stores and there was a big barrel yard out in the field behind the company. And it was uh, full of chemicals and stuff that were used in the plant and everything was stored outside in this kind of shed. It, it was a big structure, but kind of a shed environment. And uh, we were out there one day looking at, I can't, we were looking at something or another. And it was a mess. And I knew that the colleague of mine who was supposed to be managing managing it, a man who hadn't been out there in weeks, probably, I mean, he just, you know, ignored it. And so I did the same thing. I marched into the VP's office and, and said, I remember this. And I said, you know, I'd really like to manage the barrel yard. <laughs> and, <laughs> They ultimately gave it to me. And then the, the company newspaper did a big feature article and all this. We got it all cleaned up and, and fixed and segregated and, you know, all the regulations and all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, it was a that was a risky thing that I did for sure. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And I guess, you know, if you I'm sure you would say the same thing as advice for young women who are trying to, to find their way through all of this is to just have the courage to go and ask, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's sometimes what it takes. Yeah. Back right. in those days, though, it didn't mean any promotion or any more money or anything else. It was just, sure, you know, go ahead and manage it, right? Take it on. But, but at least it was additional responsibility. You put it on your resume that you did that, right? Absolutely. And it was valuable experience, you know, yes. so I, I thought, right. you know, when you're young to look at any kind of experience is really valuable to add that to right. your background and, and prepare you for the next step. So yes, it's often the, you know, you don't necessarily have to look upwards to figure out what you want to do, you can look sideways too, because it just fills in your experience and makes you that much more valuable. Terrific. Well, Cindy, anything else you'd like to add in closing thoughts? Well, so I think that, you know, it's sort of a little bit of what, what's next, because we do hope that at some point this pandemic is going to be over. And our thought, and we've had some early conversations about this with some of the same group, is that this whole cohort approach that we did was so successful and they provided so much help and even therapy to each other as we found their ways through this that we really hate to lose those connections. So we've talked about, well, maybe we should talk about how do we keep the group together, but pick other challenges to work on in the same way. 
For example, it might be around supply chain or maybe cyber is the next big thing we're going to need to, to deal with it, you know, because we know that that's coming at us. So could we work together to come up with some great, you know, cyber plans so that it is less harmful than it's likely to be? Or even the worker shortage, you know, that, that how do we help each other grow a stronger workforce, whether it's, you know, through what MACNI is doing or just helping share thoughts and comments. We, we had uh, one of the companies just do a session about a, a successful job fair that they did. And what did they do that made it so successful? So those kinds of things that, you know, these companies are very willing to share. And I think this working together is just going to make the whole community that much stronger. I agree. I think that's a that's a great idea to learn from one another, uh, especially in a in a regional setting like that where people are close and they can maybe hop in the car and drive to someone else's right. facility, have a look or to, to meet with them. So creating those a platform for those relationships is just wonderful. Right. right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Cindy. Really appreciate it. And uh, can you please give us your contact information in case anyone wants to reach out to you? Sure. So it's uh, Cindy Omegan. It's C-O-E-H-M-I-G-E-N at macne.org. And my cell phone number is 315-380-7320. And that's the best way to get me because I'm not often in my office. <laughs> You're out in the field with all the manufacturers, right? Yeah, good for you. Yes. Yep. Just about to start doing some more training and I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. For the audience, you can listen to more podcasts on Women in Manufacturing website, which is www.womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website, which is www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Have a great day. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.